Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Surprised by Joy, The Shape of My Early Life by C.S. Lewis Chapter 3, Mount Bracken and Campbell Epigraph For all these fair people in Hall were in their first age, none happier under the heaven, their king, the man of noblest temper. It would be a hard task today to find so brave a fellowship in any castle. From Gawain and the Green Knight To speak of my nearer relatives is to remind myself how the contrast of Lewis and Hamilton dominated my whole early life. It began, for me, with the grandparents. Grandfather Lewis, deaf, slow-moving, humming his psalm chants, much concerned for his health and prone to remind the family that he would not be with them long, is contrasted with Grandmother Hamilton, the sharp-tongued, sharp-witted widow, full of heterodox opinions, even to the scandal of the whole connection, a home roller. Every inch a warren, indifferent to convention as only an old southern Irish aristocrat could be, living alone in a large tumble-down house with half a hundred cats for company. To how many an innocent conversational gambit did she reply, You're talking great nonsense. Born a little later, she would, I think, have been a Fabian. She met vague small talk with ruthless statements of ascertainable fact and well-worn maxims with a tart demand for evidence. Naturally, people called her eccentric. Coming down a generation, I find the same opposition. My father's elder brother, Uncle Joe, with his family of two boys and three girls, lived very close to us while we were at the old house. His younger son was my earliest friend but we drifted apart as we grew older. Uncle Joe was both a clever man and a kind, and especially fond of me. But I remember nothing that was said by our elders in that house. It was simply grown-up conversation, about people, business, politics, and health, I suppose. But Uncle Gussie, my mother's brother, A.W. Hamilton, talked to me as if we were of an age. That is, he talked about things. He told me all the science I could then take in, clearly, eagerly, without silly jokes and condescensions, obviously liking it as much as I did. He thus provided the intellectual background for my reading of H.G. Wells. I do not suppose he cared for me as a person half so much as Uncle Joe did, and that, called an injustice or not, was what I liked. During these talks, our attention was fixed not on one another, but on the subject. His Canadian wife I have already mentioned. In her also I found what I liked best, an unfailing, kindly welcome without a hint of sentimentality, unruffled good sense, the unobtrusive talent for making all things at all times as cheerful and comfortable as circumstances allowed. What one could not have, one did without and made the best of it. The tendency of the Lewises to reopen wounds and to rouse sleeping dogs was unknown to her as to her husband. But we had other kin who mattered to us far more than our aunts and uncles. Less than a mile from our home stood the largest house I then knew, which I will here call Mount Bracken. And there lived Sir W.E., 
Lady E was my mother's first cousin, and perhaps my mother's dearest friend. And it was no doubt, for my mother's sake, that she took upon herself the heroic work of civilizing my brother and me. We had a standing invitation to lunch at Mount Bracken, whenever we were at home. To this, almost entirely, we owe it that we did not grow up savages. The debt is not only to Lady E, cousin Mary, but to her whole family. Walks, motor drives, in those days an exciting novelty. Picnics and invitations to the theater were showered on us year after year with a kindness which our rawness, our noise, and our unpunctuality never seemed to weary. We were at home there almost as much as in our own house, but with this great difference, that a certain standard of manners had to be kept up. Whatever I know, it is not much, of courtesy and savoir-faire I learned at Mount Bracken. Sir W., cousin Quartus, was the eldest of several brothers who owned between them one of the most important industrial concerns in Belfast. He belonged, in fact, to just that class and generation of which the modern man gets his impressions through Galsworthy's foresights. Unless cousin Quartus was very untrue to type, as he may well have been, that impression is grossly unjust. No one less like a Galsworthian character ever existed. He was gracious, childlike, deeply and religiously humble, and abounding in charity. No man could feel more fully his responsibility to dependence. He had a good deal of boyish gaiety about him. At the same time, I always felt that the conception of duty dominated his life. His stately figure, his gray beard, and his strikingly handsome profile make up one of the most venerable images in my memory. Physical beauty was indeed common to most of the family. Cousin Mary was the very type of the beautiful old lady, with her silver hair and her sweet southern Irish voice. Foreigners must be warned that this resembles what they call a brogue, about as little as the speech of a highland gentleman resembles the jargon of the Glasgow slums. But it was the three daughters whom we knew best. All three were grown up, but in fact much nearer to us in age than any other grown-ups we knew, and all three were strikingly handsome. H, the eldest, and the gravest, was a Juno, a dark queen who at certain moments looked like a Jewess. K was more like a Valkyrie, though all, I think, were good horsewomen, with her father's profile. There was in her face something of the delicate fierceness of a thoroughbred horse, an indignant fineness of nostril, the possibility of an excellent disdain. She had what the vanity of my own sex calls a masculine honesty. No man ever was a truer friend. As for the youngest, G, I can only say that she was the most beautiful woman I have ever seen, perfect in shape and color and voice and every movement. But who can describe beauty? The reader may smile at this as the far-off echo of a precocious half-love, but he will be wrong. There are beauties so unambiguous that they need no lens of that kind to reveal them. They are visible even to the careless and objective eyes of a child. The first woman who ever spoke to my blood was a dancing mistress at a school that will come in a later chapter. In some ways, Mount Bracken was like our father's house. There, too, we found the attics, 
the indoor silences, the endless bookshelves. In the early days, when we were still only a quarter tamed, we often neglected our hostesses and rummaged on our own. It was there that I found Lubbock's ants, bees, and wasps. But it was also very different. Life there was more spacious and considered than with us. Glided like a barge, where ours bumped like a cart. Friends of our own age, boy and girl friends, we had none. In part, this is a natural result of boarding school. Children grow up strangers to their next-door neighbors. But much more, it was the result of our own obstinate choice. One boy who lived near us attempted every now and then to get to know us. We avoided him by every means in our power. Our lives were already full, and the holidays too short for all the reading, writing, playing, cycling, and talking that we wanted to get through. We resented the appearance of any third party as an infuriating interruption. We resented even more bitterly all attempts, excepting the great and successful attempt made by Mount Bracken, to show us hospitality. At the period that I am now speaking of, this had not yet become a serious nuisance. But as it became gradually and steadily more serious throughout our school days, I may be allowed to say a word about it here and get the subject out of our way. It was the custom of the neighborhood to give parties, which were really dances for adults, but to which, nonetheless, mere schoolboys and schoolgirls were asked. One sees the advantages of this arrangement from the hostess's point of view, and when the junior guests know each other well and are free from self-consciousness, perhaps they enjoy themselves. To me, these dances were a torment, of which ordinary shyness made only a part. It was the false position, which I was well able to realize, that tormented me. To know that one was regarded as a child and yet be forced to take part in an essentially grown-up function. To feel that all the adults present were being half-mockingly kind and pretending to treat you as what you were not. Add to this the discomfort of one's eaten suit and stiff shirt, the aching feet and burning head, and the mere weariness of being kept up so many hours after one's usual bedtime. Even adults, I fancy, would not find an evening party very endurable without the attraction of sex and the attraction of alcohol. And how a small boy who can neither flirt nor drink should be expected to enjoy prancing about on a polished floor till the small hours of the morning is beyond my conception. I had, of course, no notion of the social nexus. I never realized that certain people were in civility obliged to ask me because they knew my father or had known my mother. To me, it was all inexplicable, unprovoked persecution. And when, as often happened, such engagements fell in the last week of the holidays and wrested from us a huge cantle of hours in which every minute was worth gold, I positively felt that I could have torn my hostess limb from limb. Why should she thus pester me? I had never done her any harm, never asked her to a party. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, 
we come round right. <laughs>